And welcome. You're listening to The Green Majority here at CIUT 89.5 FM in Toronto or possibly one of our wonderful and very appreciated community radio partners all the way across the country or perhaps on iTunes after the show. Regardless of how you are tuning in today, we have a fun show, uh, uh, which is good. Uh, it's also good because uh, both of our interviews this week are actually uh, pre-records. One submitted by a uh, wonderful one of our uh, 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 contributors, the other recorded by me, which is great because uh, I just got back into town from a wonderful event at Congress in Ottawa 2015 as part of the ESAC uh, Environmental Studies Association uh, conference, where I moderated a panel uh, featuring a number of uh, very well-known folks, including none other than Elizabeth May and uh, the longtime friend of the show and uh, my former professor, uh, professor Stephen Sharper as well. So it was a great panel. Uh, I'm a little bit tired, though, so I'm thankful for some pre-records uh, pre today. Um, but they are action-packed and exciting. The first, uh, sorry, the second one I should introduce first is with Charles Durber, who is a professor of sociology at Boston College. Uh, some of his earlier works that he has produced have include books with such titles as People Before Profit, The New Globalization in an Age of Terror, Big Money and Economic Crisis, as well as The Pursuit of Attention, Power and Ego in Everyday Life. That is with Charles Derber from Boston College. We're going to be talking to him today courtesy of contributor Christina Henke, who is going to be talking to him about his correlation between capitalism and climate change. His uh, perspective is that these problems are inextricably linked and that you cannot solve climate change without fixing or getting rid of capitalism. So that is, I think, a, a, a very contentious position, but we will hear him out a little bit farther into the show. Uh, we're a little bit before that. In just a moment, we're also going to be hearing an interview with Derek Angove, who is the Director of Processing and Resource Management, uh, Management for the City of Toronto. I went down to City Hall with my video camera and uh, talked to Derek and some of his team to learn a little bit about um, how the, the recycling program actually works from the city's point of view. And we talk about uh, a number of issues, including uh, the fact that this is actually a revenue generation tool for the city. And so the, the moral of today's uh, the show will be, it is your civic duty to recycle, not just because you're saving the planet, but also because you're saving the city's budget. So two wonderful things. However, uh, before we start uh, with that as well, I also want to remind listeners that if you are interested in staying up to date with the show, you can do that at greenmajority.ca. There is a mailing list right at the top of the button there. It was also a place where you can see uh, our animated series that we've been working on, which is temporarily on hiatus while Stefan and Dave are on vacation, those lucky sons of guns. Um, but we're uh, actually nearly completed the next episode, so that will be ready as well. Uh, also in studio with me today is Kevin Farmer, who is here and uh, I think is roughly in the same position uh, I am <laughs> as far as being slightly underslept. So we're, uh, we're going to do our best here today. We're going to muscle on uh, through. But uh, just while we're getting ready for that first interview, uh, Kevin, was there? Uh, do you have any sort of uh, preview thoughts of, of what we might be discussing at the end of the show today? Was there any, was there any news items you would like to tease uh, this week as we uh, head into to our first interview. No, oh, hi everyone. No, actually, I don't think so. Probably there's a zillion things, but <laughs> like you said, <laughs> it's it, we're we're both underslept. <laughs> it's been a long week, and this is a volunteer effort, folks. <laughs> so we 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 squeeze this uh, we squeeze this in between paying gigs and things like sleep. <laughs> um, so yeah, yeah, I'm really sorry. I, I don't I don't have much. I you know although last week I you know I, I'll I'll add to something I said last week when I made a comment about how the world might be 
a different place if we all, you know, got our meat from the factory farms and we all carried our, our garbage directly to the landfills and and we all picked up our iPhones directly from Foxconn where they're where they're produced by by um, abused uh, uh, indentured servants. Um, and, you know, that might have sounded a little one sided. I would like to add to that. It might be a different world, too, if we all just went and picked up our fruit and vegetables like that, from from the migrant workers who were toiling in our fields and uh, and, uh, and 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 watch the people in hazmat suits handling the chemicals that were drenching our uh, uh, all of our, our produce in. So if that sounded like an anti-meat screed or <laughs> anything like that, no, it wasn't that at all. Uh, it was it was just a, a commentary on how we live in in consequence-free bubbles in our cities now. And and uh, you, you know, the, I'm glad we're talking about recycling today. That's a that's a that's that's one step in the right direction. But recycling is the is the R of last resort, folks. By the time <laughs> by the time you get to recycling, you're only one R away from regret. So there's, you know, we're still a long way from perfecting recycling. But then we have to start making progress on uh, reusing and then ultimately reducing, and and getting further and further away from that 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 fourth R <laughs> of looming regret. Well, ladies and gentlemen, Kevin Farmer even half asleep managing to uh, put a smile on my face here this morning. Uh, thank you very much for that, Kevin. We are ready now with our first interview, whoever. So uh, I would like to uh, switch over to that. We were now going to go to my pre-record with Derek Angove, the Director of Processing and Resource Management here at the City of Toronto for uh, what I found was a very amusing interview. So let's uh, let's take it away. I'm Derek Angove. I'm the Director of Processing and Resource Management for the okay. City of Toronto. I look after all of the waste and recycling disposal and, and uh uh, reuse issues here with the City of Toronto. Derek, so one of the things that I have uh, found is that a lot of people have this mentality of, you know, water comes from taps and food comes from grocery stores. And, and it seems to me that people have a very similar mentality about recycling, which is that once they've put it in the recycling bin, poof, it magically turns back into environmental fairy dust. Uh, and people don't tend to think about it. Um, so we'd like you to tell us a bit about the story of what happens when people put things in the recycling bin. Sure. The City of Toronto has just over 400,000 recycling bins out there at curbside. And we've got about another 400,000 multi-residential units out there where people are constantly throwing out their recycling. Our trucks come along, pick up all of that material. They bring it to one of seven City of Toronto transfer stations here in the city. From there, we ship it off to different uh, recycling areas. Right now, all of the blue box material goes to Arrow Road, where the components are separated into the various commodities that, are, that make up the blue box contents. For example, fiber, paper, cardboard, different grades of plastic, uh, different metals, aluminum, aluminum pop cans, um, glass is in there as well. So all kinds of different uh, separation occurs at the material recovery facility, the MRF at Arrow Road. Uh, which in Toronto is near airport, uh, sorry, Weston Road and, and Finch in that, in that neighborhood of the city. Um, from there, we go on to further recycling. So aluminum goes off to aluminum recyclers, paper goes off to fiber mills, um, plastics off to plastic recyclers, et cetera. And we make the, uh, the products are then made into other materials again to have another life. So I think that's the that's the first detail that I want to dig into a bit. Let's maybe we'll, let's start with um, uh, bottles because that's one of the most common uh, items. So when yep. we're talking about glass uh, recycling, yep. um, uh, give us a sense of what like what actually happens to them. Do they just rinse them out and put a new label on and reuse them, or, or what does recycling a glass bottle actually mean? 
Sure. Well, there's two big components here in Toronto. Uh, really, in Ontario, there's there's the the LCBO deposit return program, which is all of our liquor and beer bottles. That all has a deposit return system. So we hope not to see most of that material. What we get are the the other glass containers that are mostly in your fridge. So you know, pickle jars, jam jars, things of that nature. We really appreciate it when residents uh, uh, wash it, wash them out because the glass recycler would like to get the glass. He doesn't really want the strawberry jam that came in with it. Um, it goes through our collection system, through the transfer stations to Arrow Road, separated into its commodities, and then glass comes out the other end. From there, we send it to a glass, uh, a further glass processor that then would turn this into new products. And usually from recycled glass, we get things like fiberglass out of it. So this, these materials then get resold. Is this like a source of uh, revenue for the city? What is that sort of like end use where it gets plugged back into usability again? Look like right. So there's two there's two questions I think you have there. One, you know, is it resold, and then how does it come back in as end use? So certainly the city of Toronto sells uh, the recyclable materials that it can. So things such as as uh, paper, steel cans, um, aluminum pop cans. Uh, here in Toronto, we call them pop cans. Around the world, perhaps they're soda cans. Um, those those types of products are are commodities which we sell off to to mills and refineries, etc., um, where they displace other raw materials coming in. So we sell that uh, uh, to to those places, and we make a lot of uh, money for the city of Toronto to offset some of our operating expenses. Uh, those those refineries, those those pulp and paper mills. They use the product the same as they would raw product. They turn it into all of the new the new uh, containers and and consumer goods that that might be used out there today. So so that's the point. I just want to hammer uh, home a little bit because I know that like a lot of the time politically that you know any environment stuff is is treated by some sectors of the population with a bit of an eye roll. Um, so you can you can say with certainty that this is obviously a, a cost benefit uh, to the city to, to be doing this. This is a, a source of revenue for the city to be engaged in as comprehensive a recycling program as possible, as opposed to just something we do because it's eco friendly. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, we 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 say the words eco friendly, but certainly it's financially friendly too to the city and to the city of Toronto's uh, operating expenses. Um, you, you know, to ship this this type of material to a landfill, landfill it. It's net expense in the trucking and the landfilling operation, and then it's end of life, it's gone. Uh, but to, to ship it back to a, a recycler, to turn it back into a new product, uh, there's a check that comes back to the City of Toronto for selling this type of material. So the more of this material that the residents of the City of Toronto can put into their blue box, and the cleaner it is, uh, the, you know, the happier... Uh, the city of Toronto is because we offset a lot of our operating expenses, so it's it's better for the resident in in their expenses. It's better for the environment because it's not going to a landfill, and um, you know the refineries and the mills can use these recycled products instead of having to bring in new raw materials. So you know all around it is really a a great program, and uh, we are hoping to expand on it and uh, and keep it going. So let's follow that. Let's follow that point a little bit. How? What sort of expansions could could be done in a in a city thing? Is there anything on the table right now, or is there anything sort of as a pipe dream that you would love to be able to get into in in accepting more types of of products? So we're always looking at what types of new you know residential consumer products can we put into the blue box that's going to match our current system. 
one of the ones we're currently expanding on right now is plastic film. So we've come up with a, a new way to separate plastic film from all the other materials, and we actually have a recycler who wants uh, large bales of plastic film and will, you know, give us that wonderful check back to the city of Toronto for taking that raw material from us. So that's what uh, we're introducing this spring here, and uh, that'll be one of the new components going into our, our blue box system. So I, I'm curious uh, what sort of a proactive role that the city takes in trying to find customers for these sorts of products. Do you find that is the, is the city sort of having its door banged down of people demanding these types of products, or do you engage in any actual like going out and, and trying to sort of find clients to, to take this? Sure. Issue? Actually, you know, it's, it's quite an extensive process, and, and there's a lot of science behind what we do here in the city, but we do uh, what we like to call waste audits, where we will actually take uh, garbage from a certain section of a certain route or perhaps a multi-residential apartment building waste. We'll put it into a, uh, a study area and we will break it into its various components to see how much recycling is in there first off, which is something we want to not see too much of in there, but how much other new products are in there that there's enough of them that we can aggregate together and perhaps find a new market. And that's where we found things like plastic film. There was enough plastic film in there that we, we went out searching actively for a market. You know, we also had to make sure our technology could separate it at the, at the separation facility. And, and there was an end use for, for the product. So, as an example of items, the plastic items that, that come into our, our blue box system, we've always had the plastic bottles and, and that kind of material that we could recycle into new plastic products. But when we were going through our waste audits, we found that there were a lot of these clamshell type plastics, which currently aren't quite the same plastic material as, as the plastic bottle. Um, for a while, this was not recyclable, but a couple of years ago, we worked with our end markets to find a, a, an acceptable reuse uh, uh, purpose for this. And now there's a, there's a, a, a plastic recycler that purchases bales of clamshell type plastic office and of course give us that great check back to the city of Toronto for all of the good recycling that the residents do. Um, I, what I'm interested in um, is I know you mentioned in something uh, I mean even I do sometimes where I'll, I'll do it sometimes and, and then I'll forget other times and be like oh, I wonder what actually happens to it is when people like throw stuff out so say like you know like a, a, a jar of tomato sauce and it's got a bunch of sauce in it and half the time people rinse it out and half the time they don't um, is that like sort of like resident residual food, you know, rotting food, that sort of stuff? Um, how big an effect on your efficiency on your end does that is? That would really affect our costs tremendously, and really we would love it if every resident would give us completely clean recycling. We do not want to receive little bits of of pop in the containers and leftover berries or tomato sauce or any of that material. When it goes through our recycling, our recyclers look at that as contamination. Our material, if there's enough contamination in there, our materials can actually be downgraded in value, which is not good for us. Or, you know, the worst case scenario, and it doesn't happen very often, but the worst case scenario is they can actually reject a load and ship it back and say that it isn't recycling. Can you just maybe dig a little bit more into the idea of 
you know, looking for new opportunities and, and how it, what is this sort of looking forward to the future of things you hope to be doing, um, new programs you maybe wish you could do, things might be about to come online. Sure. Uh, and where do you see, what do you see the sort of future possibility of how Sadiq can be involved in this? Sure. One of the really big opportunities that we see with advancing the recycling here in the city of Toronto is getting all of the recyclable materials and some of the organics out of our multi-residential apartment buildings. Almost half of the city of Toronto residents live in multi-residential buildings. It's easy for us to get the curbside buildings because we have a separate container, curbside container for the blue box material and then a separate container for the garbage. So it's easy for us to get to that resident and have them sort their materials. But in multi-residential, a lot of the buildings were built 30, 40, 50 years ago or more and they have the one garbage chute, you know, 20, 30 stories up and the resident you know, it's hard for us to get the residents convinced that, you know, only put your garbage down the chute, go down to the bottom and, and separate your recyclables for us. So we're doing a lot of things with tenant, uh, tenant uh, boards, uh, condo boards, uh, new construction of new buildings to make sure that there's, there's really good recycling options. You know, it's easy to recycle in those apartment buildings. There's options to do all of the recycling in those apartment buildings. We figure, you know, you know, just to give you a scope of how much recycling is there in, there in the apartments uh, here in Toronto, there's at least another 100,000 tons a year of recyclable materials, including organic material, which we recycle here in Toronto, that we think we can get out of the apartment uh, buildings. Would you tell us a little bit about the, uh, the food stream, both the yard waste and the green bin program, and about how that has fit into your overall um, waste diversion management strategy? So we have two different streams here in the city of Toronto. We have leaf and yard waste, which is basically your outdoor material, your 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 garden material, uh, brush, things of that nature. We collect about 100,000 tons of that material every year here in the city of Toronto, and we send that off for composting. We also collect just over 100,000 tons, sorry, about 140,000 tons, I want to say, of kitchen organics. Now that follows the same stream, but it leads a little more processing before it gets to uh, where the leaf and yard waste gets to for final curing into final compost. And from that material, we take a section back, give it back to the City of Toronto as much as they want. We give some to our Parks Department and various other places. Um, and then the leftover material is sold by some of our contractors into retail stores for purchase by residents again. There's a million different types of plastics, and there's a million different types of glass, and there's all these products. Um, and you sort of have to play catch up in the sense of like, you know, what are these giant companies producing, and and how can we how can we use this? Um, is there any attempt, or do, you know, is there any interest in the city in actually proactively reaching out to companies and saying, can we work with you on what you're using so that we can do something, so we can be more efficient in our end recycling? Um, is there any of that done? Yeah. And if not, what you know, what would that look like if you could do it? So another co common problem out there is a lot of uh, uh, product manufacturers are trying to develop something called recyclable or compostable plastic. An example of where you might see that are in the little coffee pods that go into the little instant coffee machines these days. What happens is there's coffee grounds in there which are certainly organic, but they're encased in a small plastic container. Uh, manufacturers are trying to suggest that, well, if you make that container compostable, now the whole unit could go in the green bin. But from the City of Toronto's point of view, we don't want to see compostable plastic enter our stream at any point in time. In fact, we want to discourage that. What happens is 
When it goes into our organic stream, our, our sorting system identifies it by its physical properties, the way it behaves as plastic, and it automatically removes it and discards it as, as not intended for that stream, and so it gets, it gets diverted into the landfill. On the other side, if you were to put it into the blue bin, the recycling container, it would slowly degrade the plastic going back for a reuse. So you can imagine the trouble if this, this product made by this company, I won't say the name of the company, I'll hold it this way for you, if, if it was slowly would start to degrade, they would certainly would be a little disappointed that their, their, their container holding their product wasn't as, as robust as they wanted to. So they don't want to see recyclable, compostable plastics enter the recycling plastic stream. So from our point of view, compostable plastics don't really have a, a home in either the composting program or the, the plastic recycling program. And I think that's a good example of sort of where a lot of the misunderstanding about these programs is, is that there's particular types of things that can be mixed um, and then you use it, but it's very much oriented towards the sort of end use. And it's not, again, it's that, I think it's that back to the beginning of people just think it's a magic box and once it goes, it goes in there, you know, you wipe your hands, it's, it's environmentally friendly. That's right. So these products all come in. They come mixed in in the curbside or apartment container, as you see here. Our sorting program tries to separate it all into its various components and then separate out the residue. Each of these components then gets sent off to its its recycler. So it could be a, a fiber mill or a refinery or a plastics recycler. They only want to see the plastic that they're buying from us. They don't want any of the cross-contamination in here. So we use various different... Uh, uh, sorting techniques, automated, uh, different types of techniques that look at the physical properties of the material, separate it into its components, and then we can get it recycled. When the components, so when, when metal gets mixed with metal, although our system would look at this as both metal, you know, our recycler for steel, for example, does not want to see these come in his front door. And that, you know, a large quantity of these will start to downgrade the material. So, we really need the resident to help us with not putting materials in there that are not recyclable, um, you know, not cross-contaminating materials. And I say that where, you know, don't put one type of material into another type of material. Don't put your metal can into a, a large plastic tub. The system is trying to separate all these into our components. So keep your components as, as less intermixed as you can. Don't start reinserting different products into different things. Help us out a lot and uh, help uh, recycle. It's more than your environmental duty, it's your civic duty because you're, you're actually creating revenue for the city. I think that's the, I think that's the main takeaway that, uh, from today. That's right, it's truly a win-win. It's, I mean, it's a win on the financial side and it's a, a win on the environment side. Do you have a, is there a particular horror story? You gave some sort of common examples, but is there any particular horror story off the top of your head you can think of, of just like the most thing that stands out in your mind that you couldn't believe somebody put in recycling? Sure. So as we're going through our recycling system, the, the system's designed to break the materials into its various commodities, and sure enough, one of these products started coming out that didn't fit into any stream, and we figure it came out of someone cleaning out an old garage or something of that nature, but it was an old World War II, uh, or maybe maybe Korean War, Vietnam War, but a rocket-propelled grenade came out. So um, we had to shut the line down, evacuate the building. Sure enough, we had to call the bomb squad, and the you know the city of Toronto police came with their their bomb squad, and they safely removed it. The good thing was it wasn't armed or live. They told us it wouldn't, it couldn't go off, but. 
Um, it, they confirmed it was a an, an old war era rocket propelled grenade. Wow. Yeah. So weapons recycling has yet to be implemented. Then. Weapons recycling is something we're not into here in the city of Toronto. And um, <laughs> so, so those types of materials, if 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 you find something like that, you're cleaning out a garage or you've purchased a house and someone's left some of their old uh, historical relics behind, and you find something like that, perhaps don't put it into the blue box. Call your local police department; they'll be happy to come and take it away from you. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for having me. All right, so that was our uh, sample of the interview with uh, Derek Angove, uh, the Director of Processing and Resource Management for the City of Toronto. Uh, we actually have a, uh, I took a much longer interview, but uh, uh, that, of course, was about all the time we had for today. I'm going to be cutting up some of the video into helpful little pieces. We had some visual examples and, and whatnot uh, as well. Uh, particularly, I think of interest, what I was thinking while I was editing it was well, was that if there was any uh, teachers or classrooms that would be interested in that, I have uh, much more uh, detailed uh, pieces as well as um, some images of some of the materials that he's talking about. So uh, I'm, going to, I'm going to be doing that anyway, but if you're uh, a teacher or just interested in that in general, um, feel free to reach out to us at greenmajority.ca. Um, we are now going to go to our music break, but first our tech, uh, Jason Bankhouse? Barkhouse. Barkhouse. Yeah, I just, I just asked him what his last name was two minutes ago. Jason, our new tech, please, uh, what are we going to listen to? Uh, we're going to listen to David Wilcox and Do the Bearcat. <laughs> I went to the zoo just the other week. Saw the kangaroo, had a talk with the chimpanzee. He said, Hey, brother, if you want a thing that's hip, do the bear cat. Do the bear cat. Mm, that's the name of this song. Do the bear cat. Take a little lesson and you can't go wrong. Do the bear cat. Mm, that's the way we like. Do the bear cat. It's enough to make you want to leave your home. It's the kind of sound that you can't leave alone. Enough to make you want to get a bear cat of your own and make and go. To the bear cat. Mm -hmm. Late at night when the bear cat howls, he's looking for you. Fade out, Jason. I like it. I like it. All right. So we're uh, you're listening to the Green Majority. If you're just tuning in, uh, Canada's Environmental News Hour. You might be listening to us live here at CIUT in Toronto or the Toronto area. You also could be listening to us on one of our wonderful and very appreciated community partners all the way across the country. I believe 
Man, it's hard to keep track of sometimes. I believe we're up to 25 stations at this point. Uh, if you happen to be hearing this on a podcast, however, and you don't have us on your local community station, you can go ahead and reach out to them and tell them that you would like this to be uh, played uh, on your local station. Uh, or if you're feeling shy, you can just send us a note and we'll do it. Uh, without further ado, uh, occasional contributor, um, very appreciated. She always produces wonderful interviews, and we're very thankful to have her contributing to the show. Uh, journalist Christina Henke who uh, this week brings us an interview with a widely published American social critic who's repeatedly pointed to the capitalist economic system as the culprit behind climate change and many other social ills. Here is Christina Henke in a recent interview with Charles Derber. Last year, when the French economist Thomas Piketty came out with a seminal best-selling book in which he concludes that capitalism leads to ever more income inequality, it got a lot of people talking, including folks at the White House and the United Nations. Charles Derber got in on the action, too. He's an activist and professor of sociology at Boston College. He's also a prolific author on issues such as climate change, corporate power, and peace and justice movements. Charles Derber's most recent book is called The Disinherited Majority. In it, he builds on Piketty's critique of capitalism and zeroes in on the threat of climate change. I reached Charles Derber by phone at his home in New England. So what prompted you to write your recent book, The Disinherited Majority? Um, for over the last 300 years, almost always, capitalism has been characterized by exceedingly high levels of inequality, particularly between a small group in the society of mostly hereditary people who have inherited a great deal of money and live off their wealth, and virtually everybody else who um, work hard or, or don't work at all, but whatever, they're not making much money. Many of them barely are scraping by with a living wage or less. And the only exception to that, which sort of has undergirded the, the idea of of meritocracy and, you know, you work hard and you'll get ahead, the sort of American dream idea, which has such global appeal, is that during the mid-20th century, uh, during the era of the two world wars and the Depression and the New Deal, you found a compression in incomes, that is, the gap between the rich and the poor became smaller. And that went for the, about four decades in the mid-20th century. But except for that one a very unusual historical period, which has become the sort of ideal for everybody who believes in our current political corporate capitalist system. It turns out, and this is really the punchline of, of Piketty's book, that in the, in the 21st century and before the 20th century, capitalism has never supported a middle class, really, and a view of work hard and you'll get ahead. It's really always divided into an exceedingly rich class of inherited wealth and everybody else. So it, it, it kind of reaffirmed from a very rigorous, data-driven, Keynesian economic perspective, the kind of radical perspective on our corporate capitalist system that Occupy movement, you know, which focused mm -hmm. on the 1%. And it just gave that movement, which was a popular movement of people who were not largely economists, it gave the sort of intellectual underpinning of why we're suffering this level of 
extreme disparities of wealth. Occupy began in 2011. It was really, I think, a product of popular frustration after the crash, you know, the, the Wall Street crash in 2008 and the uh, all the bailouts and all the money that went to the people who caused that crash and all the terrible effects that crash had on so many people's lives, um, particularly, you know, working people and poor people. So I wrote this book called The Disinherited Majority. I, I use the idea disinherited to sort of point out that we really are in some ways like the old middle-aged, medieval societies divided between an inherited you know, class of, of aristocrats or nobility and others who inherited a life of poverty and desperation who were the serfs. And capitalism, while, while it has created wealth, has redistributed that wealth to the top um, in an amazingly consistent and extreme way for a very long time. And this trend is likely to continue throughout the 21st century. And, I mean, you know, we're approaching a presidential election in the United States, and the inequality issue is clearly rising to the top. It's, it's just so dramatic, you know, where we, the society has been divided with so much wealth going to a tiny number of, um, I mean, for example, 400 people in the United States have more wealth than all of the African Americans in the United States. Um, you know, one person like Bill Gates has more money than everybody living in Africa. Um, the the data, you know, the the one percent. Well, fifty percent of Americans have two percent of the wealth of the country. Mm-hmm. So half of all Americans have almost no wealth at all. So. Um, some people might say, well, what's wrong with that? A lot of these uh, people are philanthropists and they do good stuff and they give to the environment and, you know, good causes. Right. So what's wrong with that? Well, the the problem is that philanthropy is not capable of managing the enormous problems that this inequality creates. So the the people who have all this money have an incentive to, first of all, basically incapacitate the, Repu- the government because they, you know, they're pouring so much money into politics through campaign finance and lobbying and so forth that they basically prevent the government from making the public investments that would help the rest of the society that is basically being dispossessed, the sort of modern serfdom. So the percentage of their wealth that the very, very wealthy are putting into philanthropy is in general low and it, it doesn't represent the kind of work that would actually fix the, the economic and social problem and environmental problems that mm-hmm. are desperately needed. And very often, I mean, just to give you an example, for example, Bill Gates has a foundation. It gives out a huge amount of money. It's focusing heavily on education. But his approach to education appears to be largely focusing on building charter schools and eviscerating the public schools, although many charter schools are public schools, and basically turning the schools more into private, corporate-linked entities. So it's not a way of building up the kind of public education system that people need to, um, to, to really restore a viable education system. So you are a professor. Yes. And why do you feel this might help people to change society so that will 
address our environmental crisis properly. How how will that help, you think? I mean, I'm sure you think it does help to make people aware, to make them critical thinkers, to provide them, you know, with certain frameworks. But from your point of view, you must be optimistic that education, the way you're providing it and your colleagues, that it is making a difference and it, it provides hope for the future in terms of our environment. Well, if you want to focus on the environmental side of that, Krishna, um, there are a lot of weaknesses in Piketty's book. Um, remember, he is a mainstream Keynesian economist. Keynesian economists are reformists who believe in capitalism, just think that capitalism needs to be tweaked, sometimes fairly significantly, in order to produce you know, stable outcomes without constant financial crises and so forth. So why I think it's important is that Piketty himself pays almost no attention to climate change and environmental issues in his book at all. The book is almost exclusively focused on the economic data about inequality, poverty, wealth, and, you know, very, very important stuff. But the political and the environmental and social dimensions are very much underplayed. And so I feel like now that this work has been established as kind of almost like a Bible of mainstream thinking about a really serious problem of income and wealth inequality, the implications of this argument for thinking about climate change the organization of our society broadly are focused on consumption and growth and so forth, which are important parts of his analysis, simply haven't been understood. They haven't been played. I think mine is the first book, for example, to really look at Piketty's analysis from the point of view of climate change. And I argue in, in my book that the implications are very significant because what Piketty finds is that you need a substantial amount of growth to close the gap of inequality. There's a kind of formula for that in his book. The problem is that, like most Keynesians, he doesn't really pay attention to the fact that if you, if you look at economic growth, as we currently understand it, that is the growth of GDP and you know, the overall production of the economy, that may have been a classic way of trying to reduce inequality, but in an, an age of climate change, we cannot afford to grow infinitely because infinite growth, at least growth as, as understood by the society and economists today, simply is a climate change driver. Um, mm -hmm. When you grow, you're extracting more resources out of the ground, obviously, so that companies can make more products, sell more, and the appetite for mass consumption that mm -hmm. corporations have created. So one thing I try to show in the book is that there seems to be a conflict. If Piketty is right, we need growth to solve the problem of inequality. But if you, if you use his solution, that is more and more growth, you're going to destroy the planet because we live on a finite planet and finite resources. You can't have infinite growth. So one of the things I explore is the very idea of growth. And, and my main argument is that there's something fundamentally sociopathic about corporate capitalism, particularly in an age of climate change, because it is committed to sort of extractive growth, that is, growth in commodities and the production of material goods, which are not consistent with solving the environmental problems, which are the greatest threat that we have in the world today.
But I don't conclude from that that we should just all go back and live in poverty or something. I'm, I don't try to romanticize. I also try to be somewhat realistic and so forth. So the way I approach it first is for the developed world, America, Canada, the United States, and so forth, we need to reconceive growth. We, there are plenty of areas where, where we need to employ people and, and indeed grow the production, so to speak, but it's not producing cars and all the sort of commodities that are the most profitable, fossil fuel-driven commodities that are packaged and industrial food. We can't grow in those areas anymore. The developed world can certainly not sustain more and more material consumption, um, bigger houses, bigger cars, bigger almost any kind of material things. But we are deprived. We are, we are way under growth in the things that really provide the most meaning for people and societies, which is in the community and social experience. I mean, what, what people find is what really gives people you know, life satisfaction and which gives societies integrity and a sense of um, inclusion and democracy and well-being is the growth of public goods which, rather than private goods. And this might sound a little strange because it's not in the vocabulary of our economists these days. But public goods refers to goods that benefit the whole society, often are created through community and public investment rather than through private corporate capitalist things. So I'm talking about obvious things, education, health care, the arts, recreating a, a sustainable green energy infrastructure and so forth. If we were to invest through the government and through whatever private businesses we would want to keep in a good society. We could grow tremendously, but what we would be growing essentially is social capital we'd be, and environmental capital. We'd be growing relations between peoples that are fulfilling. I mean, I mean you know, when people ultimately are asked what makes them happy, it is the quality of their relations with each other and the quality of their relations to the larger society. And these are areas where you can invest but it doesn't take oil or gas or coal to create these goods. These goods are produced through, well, let's take the most common example is simply interaction and, and conversation, like you and I are talking right now, and mm-hmm. maybe we're having a talk that some other people will hear. Well, it doesn't take a lot of energy in terms of fossil fuel energy to create conversation. And conversation is sort of the glue sort of talking as a, as a sociologist, of a quality of life. In America, half the Americans say they have no one to talk to, basically, about things that matter to them. Mm. They feel completely isolated. So we're clearly underinvested in our communities, in, in the sense of community, in the sense of connection. And that, in my view, this is a longer thing, but I, I've written about 20 books, and a lot of them deal with the effects of capitalism on social relationships, personal relationships. And they tend to fragment communities, weaken them, and dissolve enduring social, meaningful social relationships. So do you think in order to create this kind of a society, we'll need a revolution? I mean, how do we do away with capitalism? How, how do we attain, I mean, on an ideas level, it's all very interesting, but practically, how do we get there? Well, that's, of course a great question. That's the most important question. Part of it is just awareness. You know, we live in a society which is Orwellian. There's enormous propaganda. The media 
the United States are all owned by large corporations. The political discourse, because of the corporatization of the media, of the educational process and so forth, has closed people's minds off. And so the kinds of reforms that people even can envisage, most people cannot even imagine a shift. They don't think there is any kind of economy except the capitalist economy, even though polls show that people are not that happy because they see all this big money going to a tiny percentage of the population, and they see that democracy is being eroded and the environment is being eroded and so forth. So there's a kind of basic core, despite all the propaganda, there's a certain resonance of the kind of arguments I'm making to the general public, particularly younger people. So that takes me to the second part of my answer to your question, which is, if you look, I'll just use the United States, which is the area now best since I live in Boston. Um, the, as we look toward the 2016 election, it's quite depressing to see the candidates that are likely to emerge because they don't carry these really progressive, transformative visions. But what you notice is that at the grassroots level, there has been a growing... I mean, Occupy was an early harbinger of this, but you've seen now the growth of very strong grassroots movements among, this, let's call them the caste systems of our modern capitalism, going back to sort of that metaphor with the medieval age. We have a, essentially a caste class system of people who are locked into place, have very little chance of mobility, while a, a tiny elite, less than the 1%, maybe a 1% of the 1%, are creaming off almost all the wealth of the country. Well, that leads to desperation, anger, revolt, as people begin to experience the effects of it in their own life. So, for example, the minimum wage movements are defining themselves as the civil rights movements of the 21st century. And meanwhile, the, the race, when you see the, the movements among black people, women, gays, and so forth, that have gained a fair amount of power, a lot of those are shifting their focus to recognize that we need basic economic change. So, for example, in a period when we have a black president, the enorm amount of violence against poor black neighborhoods in big cities, and also poor white ones, by the way, is increasing. And just as the, the civil rights movement has largely benefited well-to-do black, it's created a black middle and upper class, which can, cre can, act, can create a president of the United States. But that doesn't mean that millions of black people living in American cities are not going to continue to be oppressed, basically because not only of racism, but because of the poverty that their communities are stuck in and simply can't get out of. So, in other words, my answer to your question about why would I write this or even bother to think about this, other than just the fact that I like ideas, is that I'm also an activist myself, and I'm involved with many different movements, and because I see all these movements as tied together. Most of my written books, but recent written books, have been about these issues. And they, they look at analysis, but they include a lot of discussion of how things can change. And I think we're seeing movements on the ground. If we take the environmental movement on college campuses, you see that it's almost mainstream for college students to believe there's an environmental problem, to realize that climate change is a great threat. They don't necessarily, they're not necessarily in a highly activist generation in the United States, but these issues are being viewed as kind of 
something that they realize are very important and they want to see change on and they'd like to get involved with in some ways. So, for example, just to give you one example, on a lot of campuses around the country, food, uh, the dining services, which constitute one-sixth of the, I believe, of the entire food in industry of the United States, mm-hmm. are moving toward a more sustainable local sourcing. Um, at my college, Boston College, there's a organic garden and a cafeteria that the students themselves have created and managed, which is locally sourced and based on basically vegetarian approaches, which is environmentally important because about 40, 30 or 40 percent of some people say more of all of our fossil fuel emissions are come out of raising and eating meat. So these issues are also very personal, you know, when it comes down to food, when it comes down to consumption. It's just much like I think the reason that the women's movement had a certain power was that, you know, they, they, they often talked about politics is personal. And I think things have to become personal mm-hmm. in order for people to want to change them. So I believe, my own personal view is that when I've seen things change, it's because people experience big social problems in a very personal way, uh, and they get some education that helps them understand those personal effects. And so I think there's at least the possibility that when you put these kinds of ideas out now, because they, because the problems are extremely grave and serious, and because they are personal in their impact, and because people's lives are being affected I mean, I hear students all the time really sad about their lives because they feel they, they have so much loan, student loans right now because we're not investing in education. So, like, when I graduated from college, it was I had no student debt and I went to a very good school. Now the students, like at Boston College, are graduating with forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 of debt, and they feel chained to that debt. So they're sort of chained in a caste-like way to the system. So anyway... It's not like I think it's inevitable that there will be change or, more importantly, the real significant transformative structural change we need. But I think there's a possibility there will be. And so the role of intellectuals, from my point of view, people people like myself who are privileged enough to, you know, make a living by teaching and writing and doing and so forth, our responsibility is to try to make the best possible arguments with the greatest possible resonance to the lives of people to get involved in that change. That was Charles Derber. He's a professor of sociology at Boston College and the author of a brand new book called The Disinherited Majority. I'm Christina Henke in Toronto. All right, and we are back. A little flare on the end of the interview. That was fun. So uh, we're, we're going to go now to our, our second and final music break. Before we go to Jason to just tell us what the song is, I wanted to note that this song was submitted by a listener of the show. Um, so if you have a Canadian band or artist you would like to hear on The Green Majority, you may tweet it at, at us or you may go to the Contact Us page. Someone's listening? <laughs> In fact, they are, Kevin. Uh, although this was a note after the appeal for a similar appeal for music. We've had good luck. I think we've had at least one requested track every week uh, going now, which is which is great. <laughs> However, uh, 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 I'm making an exception. Uh, this is a longtime friend of the show. Um, he's on Twitter as his name, so I feel like I'm okay to say his name, uh, Alexander Knight, uh, who's a fan of the show, friend of ours as well. Um, so I'm only pointing that out also because 
The band that he picked is not Canadian, and I'm going to chastise his, him on air for that. We're going to make an exception for Alex because he's a friend of the show. But please, if you have Canadian music or artists you would like played on the show, you can tweet at us at Green Majority or go to the Contact Us page on our website at greenmajority.ca. And uh, if you want to know about a whole bunch of much wider range, uh, a whole bunch of environment uh, news as well as just general poli- uh, politic information, I do recommend following Alex as well. So we're actually going to put his uh, Twitter handle on today's post because we mentioned him. Uh, without further ado, though, Jason, would you please... Uh, uh, let us know what we're going to listen to. We are listening to the Tower of Dudes and their song Hibernation. back. Sorry, that was a super short music break because I realized we had uh, two pre-records that were quite long today and we're riding up against the end of the show already. We only have about four minutes left. Uh, so if you want to hear the rest of that music uh, as well, you can go on the website uh, greenmajority.ca and click on radio show and you'll find a link to today's show post where you can get more information as well as links to all of the interviews, guests and topics we discussed. So in five minutes remaining here, Kevin, uh, we decided that uh, there was a bunch of stats can uh, statistics Canada uh, data that came out uh, saying something that uh, has already been sort of well distributed, I guess they were uh, CBC was talking about it because it was uh, an update but uh, I just thought it was funny because they were like they seemed shocked like the breaking news uh, income is uh, is not fair in Canada and we have great wealth disparity uh, as uh, as our previous guest was just outlining um, so the the point quickly that I just wanted to point out about this was uh, back to the the very excellent video Kevin that uh, Broadbent Institute put out where they compared three sets of numbers. One of them was they asked Canadians where do you, how do you think income is distributed in Canada? What do you think the optimal income distribution is in Canada? And then lastly, they showed the numbers. And you can go watch the Broadbent Institute video. I will post it with the show afterwards. It's very short. It's sort of infographic-y type video. Um, but the point there, I think, one, of course, that we all know is that there's massive wealth disparity in Canada. And I think many of us are also aware that this is a problem that is increasing as time goes by. This problem is consistently getting worse. Of Fewer and fewer people are having more and more control over all of the resources of this country and, and many countries. But you know, we're talking about Canada for now. The thing that I thought was interesting, though, the point that I just wanted to, to mention very, very quickly here, uh, was the idea that inherently, even though Canadians underestimated how fair, uh, how unfair the system were, everybody seems to have an inherent understanding that the system is unfair. And uh, 
I will have about time for about a two-minute comment, Kevin, if you wish, or, or use as much time of that as you wish. But just about sort of, is it, a, is it a fact that, you know, because we don't see much activism on this, we don't see politics talking about it, we don't see a lot of discussion, it's not, a, it's not an election event, uh, is income uh, inequality in Canada. And yet all Canadians seem to inherently understand that, that we do live in an unfair system. And do you think it's just that people understand that and don't care? Or do you think it's the factor that they're just grossly misunder, uh, misunderstanding uh, how big a problem it is? And that if they were aware, if more Canadians were aware of this, just how unfair and un, uh, tilted our economic system is like, towards a very small minority of people, if they really understood how bad it was, do you think they'd be motivated to do something about it, Kevin? Um, yeah, sure, maybe. Um, those those studies and similar studies to that also show that people uh, routinely overestimate their own uh, position within the economic stratification. So the people in the lowest decile will like estimate that they're actually only in the eighth lowest or the second the second from the bottom. Like people, like you say, our, our perceptions of this are, are not good. So even though people know it's a problem, they don't seem to realize how bad off they are themselves within within the economic stratification that exists. And I find that very interesting. So maybe, you know, you know, people do realize there's a problem. Maybe they would be more active if they realized, hey, wait a minute, I'm actually really losing uh, in this circumstance. You, you, you learn a really healthy respect for uh, the environment and all dynamic systems when you figure out what the hell a feedback loop is. And, 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 Piketty has shown what we've all known for a long time, the rich get richer. Why? Because richness, wealth is a feedback loop in our system. If you have wealth and power, you simply have more access to the means by which you gain more wealth and more power. It's a feedback loop, and it's, it's one that is, is just the definition of, of unsustainable. And that's what, that's what Piketty has shown, is that left to its own devices... Uh, this is how our system will trend. It does trend and will trend. And the, just to make a quick comment about what Kristina asked, you know, oh, you know, Bill Gates, yeah, he's a philanthropist. Well, if the philanthropy of billionaires is such a great thing, why are we waiting for their spiritual awakening to get them to engage in it? <laughs> you know, harvest that money sooner and don't wait for their spiritual awakening and, and, and leave it up to like their personal judgment about what are the, the, the truly good causes in the world. All right, we'll have to leave it there. We're out of time. I'll just leave you with a quick thought. Uh, we'll get into it more next week. I'm just going to link bait you here verbally, which is uh, how about a minimum and maximum income? There's an idea. We'll talk about it next week. You've been listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5. A good green week, folks. We'll see you real soon. 